Well, I invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is a text that we've camped out in here a few weeks, and I'm going to try to summarize all this and wrap it up today. Uh, as you've heard me say several times, it's uh, one of the most controversial texts in the New Testament. And uh, uh, there'll be some of you... Uh, who hear this, and you may not agree with my take on it, that's fine. Um, others will, some of you may think I'm not going far enough, some too far, but my, I'm doing my best to rightly divide this and to apply it from, uh, and so uh, I invite you to look there with me in just a moment. Dr. Tony Evans, in a book written, Marriage Matters, makes an interesting comparison between maintaining your car and marriage. How many of you have taken your car in for an oil change or for some routine maintenance, maybe like rotating the tires, and after a normal inspection of the vehicle, the service technician informs you that your front tires are showing signs of improper wear. And the reason for the uneven wear is an alignment issue. Any of you ever hear that? And so with that news, you have a choice. You can do nothing, and within a period of time, you'll begin to uh, have to shell out some money to replace the tires, or you can act proactively and spend some money and invest in a front-end alignment. See, the real problem is not that the tires are wearing thin and improperly, but rather the real problem is your vehicle is not in proper alignment. Driving from point A to point B when the front end is out of alignment will provide unnecessary wear and tear on the tires. So if you look around at our marriages and families and churches, there is certainly some evidence of wear and tear. There are too many women today married to men who are abused and neglected and taken advantage of, thus experiencing some wear and tear. There are children who are being indulged and forgotten who are experiencing some wear and tear. There are men who are being usurped and disrespected, experiencing some wear and tear. And lots of wear and tear on church members and ministries alike because things in the body of Christ are not in alignment. So let's return to the roots of the Bible, which is what Paul is doing at the end of this text that we're going to read. Paul, if you remember, provides some spiritual instruction to a first-time young pastor by the name of Timothy, and he says, Timothy, in this letter, this is the strategy that you can employ for a healthy church. And I would just kind of help to guide our thinking a little bit. When we're talking about a healthy church, we're not talking about everyone else, the church out there, because a healthy church is comprised of who? Of healthy church members. And so this instruction, this strategy really applies to all of us. Timothy, he's, Paul says, these are to be your priorities and leading, overseeing the church. And so you remember what he said? Devote yourself to doctrine, 
to the, to the ministry of the word, both what you are teaching and what's being taught. Second, call every member, every member in the body of Christ to get connected. Every member. Every member of Hillcrest Baptist Church. And, and I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it. And I, uh, and I mean this with all sincerity and love. There are, there are many folks uh, here who stand in need of revival of our church. Amen. And we've got, and just some of you may not be here or you may be here, but we've got a large segment of this church from about age 55 to 65, 70 who have raised kids in this church and, and now you're checked out. I mean, this is still your church. I'm not saying you don't love Jesus and love his word, but just not willing to dig back in and make commitments to help advance the health of the church. And I, I just, I just I can't say this strong enough. For us to be healthy, for you and I to be healthy Christians, you, you see no Lone Ranger Christians in the Bible. Every one of us as members need to be connected in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ where we have some spiritual accountability. Uh, it is a dangerous, it will be a dangerous thing for you to live a Christian life without any accountability. Do, do I need to explain why that might be? We all, listen, we're all going to be accountable to God. We are accountable to God and we're going to give an account. And one of the things to help us would be account, accountability with brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Paul says to Timothy, every member devoted to doctrine, every member connected, okay, connected there, and then the entire congregation, men and women alike, he says this in the second chapter, are to be devoting themselves to prayer. How do you think you're doing? He says all kinds of prayer for all kinds of men. And since he says in the text, since God desires all men and women to be saved, call the members, Timothy, tell them, especially the men, to be praying for the lost. Praying for the lost. And then in, we arrive at our text, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And so a couple of things we've touched on thus far. First, Paul addresses in verse 8 some divisive men in the church. Basically says, tell these brothers to stop quarreling, stop arguing, fighting, and devote themselves to prayer. Living godly lives and devoting themselves to prayer. And then he details some distractions that were occurring among the women. And so he provides some instructions starting in verse 9 through 11. And then as we get into verse 12, he begins to clarify some distinctions between men and women in the church. And so I invite you, if you have your Bible, read with me 1 Timothy 2, starting at verse 8. I'll just kind of review the text. Verse 8, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach, or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Eve was not 
or Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And I will just tell you, it's not the most obvious, but I think one of the most difficult tech verses to interpret in that text is verse 15, <laughs> and, uh, which I'm probably not going to do a very good job, but we'll, uh, we'll get to this. So let me, let me pray with you as we get started. Father, we, we pray that in these moments that your spirit would uh, give us ears to hear and minds to receive your word. And Father, wills, would you work in our wills that we would desire to align our lives personally and for us as a church collectively, God, according to the scriptures. Father, align us today with you. Align us today with one another for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll notice in verse 12, which is what I want to focus on, and then I think what Paul is doing in this text, he, he provides a couple of prohibitions in verse 12, and then he uses verses 13 through 15 as kind of a, a commentary, if you will, within the Bible on verse 12. And so he clearly forbids the second part of verse 12 from Women, women having spiritual authority over men. And his rationale, again, goes back to the roots of the Bible. Verses 13 and 15, they refer back to Genesis, which we'll look at in just a moment. And so here's what I think is the heart of the message, that all of us, men and women, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, need to do an alignment inspection. There needs to be an alignment check in our homes as well as in our churches. And so ask yourself if there is some unnecessary wear and tear because things are not properly aligned. Like trucks and cars that need to be properly aligned, God's covenants to us in his word, with those of us who are saved by his grace through faith and husbands and wives who recognize that Christ is Lord in our marriage and all of us as a church who recognize and submit to the headship of Christ, all of us recognize that God's covenants only work and function according to his ordained order. So that same costly wear and tear on tires shows up in marriages, it shows up in our churches when we ignore staying in alignment with his design. So Look with me at verse 12. Keep your Bible open. He says something there. I do not permit a woman to have authority over man, but to be in silence. And we've already looked at his prohibition for women not to teach, which I'll summarize at the very end of the message. I do not permit a woman to have authority over man, but to be in silence. Some translations actually say there to be quiet, which is, again, conveying this idea of submission. And then in verses 13 through 15, notice what Paul does. He defends this idea of spiritual authority, of headship and submission from the book of Genesis. Look at verses 13 through 15 again with me. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, God's original desire prior to sin prior to the fall, included spiritual alignment. 
both in the home and, as we'll see, in the church, that the men and women are to live godly lives, walking worthy of their calling, with the men being more prayerful and less divisive, and the women being more careful and less distracting, with both men and women recognizing their distinct roles, thus eliminating wear and tear. You with me? Does it make sense? So in better to, order to better understand Paul's appeal, go with me in your Bible. Keep your place here because we're going to come back. But go with me back to Genesis chapter 3. And so let's just kind of review this together. Genesis chapter 3, this is the commentary he provides for the pro prohibition of women being able to have spiritual authority in the home and in the church. Genesis chapter 3. We see from Genesis chapter 3 that our enemy, our adversary, began to work to disrupt God's design, to disrupt it. He goes to work attacking this very first marriage, and his methodology for the attack was to get things out of alignment. And his, and his specific while here is through a bait and switch tactic, to switch the order of the relationship. Read with me Genesis chapter 3, starting verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And you know the rest of the story, God confronts them begins to ask them questions, not because he doesn't know what's happened, but he's drawing them out. I want you to, if you have your Bible, just keep it open. Let's, let's look at this together. I want you to notice Satan did not go to Adam. He did not go to Adam to make a decision. He went to Eve, and his approaching of Eve was on purpose to switch the order of alignment. God previously told who? God previously told Adam that long before Eve was even in the picture, he says to Adam that you may freely eat except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so after God gives this instruction to Adam, it was then Adam's job, which evidently he does, to pass along the information to Eve. Then sometime later, Satan arrives on the, scene, on the scene, the Bible says, taking the form of a, of a, of a crafty serpent, a, kind of a sneaky snake, and he engages Eve. And the serpent and Eve 
begin then to enter into this in-depth dialogue centered around God's word, centered around God's instruction. And they engage in this dialogue apart from Adam. If you notice in verse 6, it says, When Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, and she saw and recognized that it was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit. And so Eve made a deliberate decision, a deliberate choice, a decision based upon emotional, impulsive, the impulsive moment at that time. And the text says when she saw, she delighted and she desired it. Emotional, impulsive decision. And then what happens in verse 6? It says she took of it, she gave the fruit to her husband, and he, the husband, ate it with her. Now, think a little bit. When all of this is going on between the sneaky snake and Eve, where is Adam? Well, look at verse 6. The Bible says that Adam is with her. And so what you see right here in the beginning is the husband becomes spiritually passive and Eve steps into the lead. And from that point forward, things go out of alignment. And the consequences are devastating. Not only are they devastating, but the consequences are eternal. The enemy's strategy is to go on the attack and to reverse God's good design in that marriage relationship. The roles get reversed. Adam becomes spiritually passive, failing to provide spiritual leadership and all that that entails, and Eve moving into a role that was intended for Adam. And it all goes out of line. And today, what you see here is getting worse and worse and worse. Of course, me being a man, a husband, and a father, and a grandfather, I have a tendency to be more hard on myself and my brothers Brothers who are spiritually passive, who are failing to step up and to provide servant leadership in their homes and in the church. And so back to the service illustration with the technician. If the service tech tells you your vehicle is out of alignment and you do nothing and you keep driving, what happens to the tires? Well, that's right. Eventually, as the tread wears off unevenly, the tires will begin to become out of round, out of balance. And then when you get into that vehicle, if they're really worn badly at higher speeds, the whole thing will begin to vibrate and shake. Likewise, in the home and in the church, when relationships are functionally out of alignment and they stay that way for a long period of time, the wear and the tear worsens and worsens and the result is marriages begin to grow shaky, and so does the health of the church. And so walk with me back to the New Testament. I want you to go with me to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, go with me there, to chapter 11. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives some instruction about alignment. Alignment, a little bit more in detail. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm just going to read one verse, verse 3. 
Again, he's writing, dealing with God's design for husbands and wives and dealing with how things are to be done in the church. And he says in verse 3, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. I want you to know this. I want you to be informed. He's writing to believers. The head of man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So the word there and for head is a Greek word, kephele, and that word is a military term conveying, conveying some order and a certain structure, a certain design, which means there is an order to God's design. There's an order to God's creation, to his structure, which applies to marriage. And it applies to how God intends for husbands and wives to relate to each other, and certainly in the church, how you and I relate to each other as well as to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with verse 3 of your Bible, what does he say the order is? He says, God is the kephele, he is the, he is the head of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of a woman. Now, look at verse 3. I want to say this again. Man is the head of a woman. That does not say that a man is the head of all women. It says a woman. And the reason I say that is because this order of alignment does not mean, and there's some brothers who get this, out of whack in their thinking and understanding, that does not mean that all men are over all women. And if you're a Christian brother and you start adopting that kind of mindset and you go out into the world in secular culture, you're going to have some problems. Doesn't mean that all men are over all women. Nor does this order apply to a, again, to a secular outside environment and to other relationships. Rather, we're to recognize and wise to understand the context of what Paul is saying here. This applies only to husbands and wives in marriage in the church. And so verse 3 specifically says woman. And it's singular, which means a woman, which we would understand to be his wife. And so verse 3 is one of function, it's a functional picture of alignment. It is what Paul is conveying to Timothy in our original text regarding women not having nor exercising authority over men in the church. God the Father is over the Son Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ is over all men, and a husband, a man, is over his wife. And whenever any of this order for whatever reason is distorted or reversed, the ride will become shaky. And I want you to keep in mind regarding God the Father over the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, never when you study the Bible does the relationship between Jesus and his Father, it's never out of alignment. It's never out of alignment. He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is perfectly one with God, Jesus is one in essence with the Father, equal with God, equal in value, equal in worth, equal in dignity, just spiritually equal, but in all of his equality, without any loss of his dignity or value or worth, he is constantly, Jesus, constantly submitting himself 
to please the Father. Jesus is gladly doing his Father's will. Jesus is taking on this attitude which Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 2, 5, let this mindset, let this attitude be in you, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. As you study the relationship between Jesus and the Father, while spiritually one, spiritually equal, Jesus is always adopting an attitude of voluntarily relinquishing his rights with the desire to do anything and everything that he can to please the Father. And you remember, it's pretty cool, several times throughout the Gospels, the Father does what? He commends the Son. Hey, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. It was a great, great functional relationship between Jesus and the Father. Jesus is always moving, working, functioning under the authority of the Father. And I want you to also note in that relationship, God is the head of Christ. This is important for, for us as brothers to see and understand. God the Father as the head of the Son Christ, as you read the Bible, never any place will you ever see the Father issuing demands of the Son. Show me that in the Gospels. You never see it. The Father is never barking out orders to the Son. You ever think about that? How is God the Father the head? How is he the head of the Son? Well, what you will find in that relationship is God the Father is always leading and loving and caring and commending and protecting and speaking and directing and encouraging and complimenting. He's never barking out orders. But he's conveying all of this to the Son. And in all of that, the Son is always submitting to the Father, always wanting to do that which honors his heavenly Father. Jesus said to his disciples in John 4, 34, speaking of himself, I have come to do the will of my Father and to accomplish his work. The one who sent me, Hebrews chapter 1 states regarding Jesus, when it came to functioning on this earth, Jesus placed himself underneath God to carry out his divine plan. And so the idea is that the work of redemption, which includes your salvation and my salvation, it was completed because Jesus functioned under the headship of the Father. Your redemption, sanctification, glorification, eternal life, all of it was accomplished through a system of alignment. It was all accomplished through a system of hierarchy through Jesus submitting to the headship of the Father. And so we read the head of every man is Christ. Every man is under, every Christian man is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to point out something from this, from this verse in 1 Corinthians eleven three, 3, something that's often overlooked in this pattern or this order of a spiritual alignment. Most of the time we talk about women not being submissive, not respecting their husbands, which by the way, in Ephesians 5 where you see that, you also see the husband 
commanded to love his wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for it. He laid his life down for the church. And so he's laying his life down in love for the wife. And the wife is voluntarily relinquishing his, her rights, submitting to the husband. And so you have this great picture of love and submission there. But what's often overlooked here as we think about headship is in this pattern of order and spiritual alignment is that every man is underneath the headship of Christ. Every man is under the headship of Christ. And so usually when this all starts to break down, think with me and go back. Think with me, we never see a breakdown with Jesus under the authority of the Father. That relationship always remained intact with, with great kingdom results. Jesus demonstrated his submission, the Bible said, even unto death, even death on a cross. But the breakdown in this order of alignment typically occurs at level number two, which is where every man is supposed to be under the headship and the authority of Christ. So for the brother who, who really wants his wife to be submitting to him, but doesn't recognize he's to be submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's, there's going to be some problems. Let me go a little, for, a little further. This order, this spiritual structure is also what supplies us with a biblical definition of a man. Let me, let me give this to you. They might flash this up on the screen. The biblical definition of a man from Scripture is a male who has learned to operate, to run, to function in life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That should be true of all Christian men. Men who have learned to place themselves to operate under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so if a husband were to complain about his wife not being submissive and would begin to think and say things like, she doesn't want to relinquish her rights and she doesn't want to put my needs and my interests ahead of her own, I would propose to you the reason is because there's a breakdown of level number two. The husband is not submitting his life to the authority of Jesus Christ. And so guys, let me ask you a question. Are you, a, are you living a submissive life? A submissive life unto the Lord Jesus with an attitude of, Lord, I'm going to voluntarily relinquish all of my rights, all of my preferences, all of my finances, all of my time. Lord Jesus, I want to surrender, submit my life completely to you, dying to self to live a crucified life. It's often overlooked. And brothers, I say this to you in love. If you feel like you're having a problem with your wife, it might be good to consider and back up if King Jesus is having some problems with you. Because you may not, well, you may not be seen in your wife. What you might be seen is simply a reflection of what Jesus is seeing in you. There's an alignment issue. And I would also add the word submission is not a bad word. Uh, Unfortunately, it's developed a lot of negative connotations, but in reality, submission is positive. It's an effective word, accomplishing much good. The word literally means to choose, to place yourself under voluntarily. Again, it's a military term as well, hupatasso, 
which conveys order and structure which are essential for achieving victory. For achieving victory. And so in the biblical usage of the term, submission never involves coercion. Submission never involves coercion. Rather, it's always referring to a willingness to take who I am and what I have and to surrender it for the betterment, for the good of another. And in a man's case, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the woman's case, to the Lord herself, and then also to her husband. So practically, when a husband refuses to submit and surrender his life to Jesus, then there's going to be a lack of submission and surrender on the part of his wife. Once the husband is out of alignment, everything else in the family will generally follow suit. And this is what I pray. This is what I wish for all of my brothers in Christ. I wish that all of us as brothers in Christ would come to the place where we would learn to trust in the grace and the goodness of God. That we would really learn to trust in the grace and the goodness of God. Because I think a lot of us, we don't, tr we don't, we don't trust the Lord the way we should because we really don't know him. And there's this idea, and I've talked to a lot of guys, and they're, they're hesitant. They're afraid to really surrender their life to Christ because they're afraid they're going to become miserable. That God's going to take away things from me, and this is going to this, and this is going to happen to me. And it all comes down to a failure, a lack of faith, to fail to really trust in the grace and the goodness of Christ. I also want to point out something from Genesis chapter 3 and Romans 5. I want to ask you this question. While Eve is talking with the devil and chooses to eat from the fruit, who takes the blame for sin entering the world? Who's blamed? Well, you, you go through this blame game originally when God begins to confront, but that's right, it's Adam. In Genesis, God confronts Adam. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it teaches that sin entered the human race, not by Eve, but by Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 states that in Adam, or because of Adam, all die. It's Adam. Why is that? It's because God's design, his order, was for Adam to be the one that was held responsible. Not that Eve was totally irresponsible, not had any responsibility, but Adam is responsible. And I've kind of learned this. If God holds me responsible for alignment of the home and of the church, then I'm going to do my best to depend upon Christ, to live under his authority, submitting to him, because I don't know enough to lead without him. I really don't. And I've learned also this principle. If you want to lead well, learn to be a good follower. Brothers, if you want to lead spiritually in the home and in the church well, learn to follow well. Follow the Lord Jesus. Those paths, those footprints of Jesus that we sing about. So Paul tells Timothy, in the church, there is to be a maintained spiritual authority for church health, a spiritual order of alignment. And Paul goes back to provide a commentary to support this from Genesis chapter 3, which we've looked at. So let me close, wind, wind us down. So what does spiritual authority and leadership look like in the church? Well, go back to 1 Timothy 2. What does spiritual authority and leadership, what is it supposed to? To look like. It's not what it always looks like, but what is it supposed to look like in the church? Well, if you go to chapter 3, verse 1, Paul provides the picture. In chapter 3, verse 1, in the church, he prescribes 
that this spiritual authority, this spiritual leadership in the church consists of some brothers referred to as elders. They're to provide spiritual authority, spiritual headship, spiritual direction, spiritual shepherding over all of the church. That's the prescription. And in verse 2 you say, you see, one of the main qualities that these men are to have who provide spiritual leadership and authority in the church is they are to know the scriptures. Verse 2, they are to be apt to teach. And so practically that means that the congregation for spiritual health needs to do two things. They first need to identify some men. And by the way, I'd point out in chapter 3 that there's difference between elders and deacons. And you'll never see that deacons are required to be apt to teach because there are to be servants, but the elders are to be apt to teach. And leading, establishing spiritual authority in the church. And so two things, the church needs to identify who these men are, these godly, prayerful men who are apt to teach, which means they know the scriptures, they know how to communicate the scriptures, and they know how to apply them in order to make decisions. So they need to identify them, and then secondly, they need to set them apart publicly to lead the church. To identify them and set them apart. And so let me summarize, and then we'll go home. <laughs> let me summarize what we've covered from 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15, just to kind of a, to land the plane to make it all clear. Here's the summary of this text, 8 through 15. First, men are to step up and to live godly lives and stop being divisive and to pray. Timothy called men in the church to be prayer warriors. Lots of prayer for all kinds of people and especially for lost people to be saved. And let me just add a little commentary here. Many of us get more focused on verse 12 and what that means and we completely ne neglect some of this other. How many of you would say that we're really passionate about praying for lost people? Second, he says... Women in the church are to stop being distractive, and he covers two areas, verse through 9 and 10. He says how their dressing and behaving in the church was distracting. And so the principle is when you're gathering with your church family as a, a Christian woman, make sure your outward appearance is pleasing to God and your words and your actions honor Christ. And again, the application applies to church gatherings, but it also should, should describe us in public with the aim of modesty to always receive an amen from the Lord with a goal for Christian men, women who are professing godliness. Second, in verse 11, the second area, he says the women are to be allowed to learn. And we just read over that, no big deal, but in the first century, that was a big deal, right? Jewish girls very seldom were, got the advantage, the blessing of learning, and Greek girls were even less than Jewish girls. And so Paul is affirming something. Let the women learn. Let them receive spiritual instruction to know God more and to know more of his word and his ways. And so the application for us certainly involves men and women learning doctrine. But I would also just encourage women to get education. That women, just like men, developing themselves intellectually for God's glory. Then from verse 12, two prohibitions. Women are not to teach. Women are not to teach. And I, my take on this is they're not to teach, which is in the context of chapter 3, verse 1, which means women are not to teach as elders. 
That is not a blanket statement. Women are not forbidden to teach because you see other places in the New Testament where women are using their teaching gifts and their ministering the word to build up the church. And there are numerous places and examples in the New Testament where they're doing just that. In a few cases, it even they're teaching in the mixed audience of other men, Christian men. But what's important is they demonstrate a submissive attitude to the Lord, to their husbands, and to the elders. And I'm not going to go through all of these again, but again, just the Great Commission is given to men and women to teach the Word. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul tells the church, men and women in the church, to teach and admonish one another, letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Acts chapter 8, Aquila and his wife Priscilla are providing spiritual instruction to a man, a brother named Apollos. It says they, the two of them took Apollos aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That sounds like teaching. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I do not forbid men and women in the church to pray and to prophesy so long as they demonstrate proper humility and submission. And so, yes, let the women learn. Let women learn. Let them teach, but they're not to teach in the role of an elder, not to have that authority. They're to teach in accord with, never contrary to what the elders in the church establish. And then the second restriction, verse 12, women should not lead as elders, pastors, and overseers in the church. That restriction in verse 12 restricts them from demonstrating and functioning with spiritual authority in the body of Christ. In other words, verse 11, you'll see that they're to, they're to be learned quietly in its submission. So in the church, men and women alike are to gladly submit to the servant leadership of men who are functioning as elders, who are apt to teach, appointed and set apart by the church, which also means that we talked about this, women should also be free to provide spiritual leadership in various areas of ministry throughout the church, again, under the authority of the elders. Let me quote, provide a quote from John Piper in his book entitled Freedom to Minister. And this is what he says about women from this text. When you look through the New Testament, you see women teaching, helping, serving, equipping, and spreading the gospel. The fields of opportunity are endless for the entire church to be mobilized in ministry, males and females. Nobody is to be at home watching soaps and reruns while the world burns. God intends to equip and mobilize all the saints under the leadership of a company of qualified men who take primary responsibility for leading and a teaching as elders in the church. So don't tell Lottie Moon or Amy Carmichael or Elizabeth Elliot or Kay Arthur they're to be sidelined in the church. Now, some of you may ask, Pastor Charlie, apart from an elder, are there any other ministry positions in the church where a woman should not provide leadership? What about a small group of mixed adults? What about teaching teenage guys? What about a Sunday school class with her husband? What about a couples class or an equipping class of some type? My answer to that is those are all great practical questions which should be addressed by the elders of the church with care and careful consideration. That's where we are. Let's pray.